So we've titled this series in Epiphany, The Problem, and I've explained to you that before we can arrive at a solution, we have to first define what the problem is. My instinct is to spend a lot of time on the problem, and so I have to push myself for various reasons. We'll be taking a longer look at this subject all the way through Lent, Lord willing. But you might have heard about the collapse of the 175-year-old church in New London, Connecticut. New London, Connecticut, I was raised outside of New Haven, which is kind of in the middle of the state on the coast. New London was about 40 miles or so further east on the coast. You might have seen the picture of this church. Originally, it was a congregational church, and this harkens back to the founding of the nation. This particular building was built in 1850. It's in downtown New London. How many saw this on the news? I think it is a visual image of the mess that we're in, not only particularly as the American church, the popular church in America, but also, generally speaking, the church worldwide. You might have also seen a few years ago when Notre Dame nearly burnt to the ground, and that iconic picture where the tower, which was constructed out of oak and covered in lead, fell. Now, in both instances, these pictures are not without their stories of redemption. If you followed any of the documentaries on the rebuilding of Notre Dame, even while the place was burning down, there were people that were gathered on the streets in Paris who were praying in that situation. And I guess there was a veritable forest that constructed the roof of Notre Dame. How many know when you get a seasoned piece of oak, it really wants to burn and keep burning and throwing off the heat? So these huge timbers that created the roof system structure of Notre Dame, it was a miracle really that they were able to save the building from total destruction. In the same way, the church that was currently occupied in church building in uh, New London, Connecticut. There is a theater group close by, this is in downtown New London, that has opened up their space for them to have church this morning. But what we do see is that the collapse of this church in New London, the city fathers have decided to tear the rest of the building down because it occupies some very expensive land in downtown New London, and no doubt they've already got plans there was really no discussion as to whether the church should be rebuilt or not. The rest of it is destined to be raised, if not raised already, R-A-Z-E-D, taken down. So those two pictures come to mind, and they're kind of visual representations of the difficulties that are facing us. And I'm not talking about other people. I include myself. When people ask me what kind of church is this, I tell them we're evangelical, reformed, and Pentecostal with a small p. And then, of course, when you mention that Pentecostal with a small p, it always kind of issues forth a, a little chuckle out of people. And they're like, well, either they walk away thinking you're crazy, or they say, tell me more. Uh, can you explain that to me, please? What does it mean to be evangelical, reformed, and Pentecostal with a small p? And it takes a long time. Usually they eventually do walk away even in the midst of my explanation. But I consider myself still an evangelical, and evangelical, 
that word has been co-opted by the politics of culture in our day to mean something else. But old school evangelicals, if I can put it that way, have a high view of Scripture. They have a high view of Christ. They believe that there is such a thing as a conversion experience, that you must be born again in the words of Jesus, and that their mission is to take the good news of the gospel and spread it abroad, not only to your neighborhood and your community, to your friends and relatives, but also to the whole world. So I still identify as an evangelical, but that comes with a whole host of problems now. So Randall Bomber, who has written several books, he's uh, actually a religion professor, uh, or his specialty is in the history of religion, I believe. But he says, although both the evidence and the explanations are contested, few Americans would question the assertion that Christianity is facing something of a crisis these days. So I think that we can agree at that. We've talked about that, the rise of the nuns. I heard on the uh, news the other day that the latest Pew survey still is recording about a 28 percentile of people who, when asked what is their religious affiliation, they check the box, nuns. So I think we can agree that for whatever reason, we are facing, I would call it an existential crisis. I mean, if you talk with pure secularists or people who are in the nun category, they will talk openly about a day that's coming in America when there won't be a Christian majority. The vast majority of people, not only in the world, but in the United States, believe in God. But whether that God is the God of the Bible or not requires further inquiry. So Bomber goes on to say, he says, explanations vary for the crisis in American Christianity. One camp insists that secularization is the root of the problem. Increasingly constricting expressions of faith in the public arena. Christians, in this view, are embattled. Their morality held up to ridicule in popular culture. Their beliefs brushed aside as superstition. Their children subjected to all manners of indoctrination in schools and in the media. And, of course... Uh, we're familiar with this explanation for why Christianity, quote-unquote, is kind of on the ropes in our culture. It's because of them. They are the enemy. Dan Scott posted on Facebook the other day a moderate post. He's got both feet in trying to stand in the middle and keep both sides from killing each other. But someone responded in a comment on his Facebook post, and they simply said, secularism is the enemy. And of course, when you're trying to fire up the troops and turn out a vote, then emotional language is often engaged. I know I do. Sometimes I put my tongue in gear before my brain is even awake. So this is a popular explanation for the crisis that we're in, is that it's somebody else's fault. We're Christians. We're good people. After all, the country is, as somebody might go on to say, the country is a Christian nation, and we've always tipped our hat toward Christian principles. But Bomber goes on to say another view agrees that Christianity is on the ropes in American life, but the fault lies with Christians themselves. 
So this kind of explanation, people would say, well, this is not a Christian nation, although that's a common understanding uh, among a lot of people. But technically, this is not a Christian nation. The First Amendment mandated no religious establishment. Besides, they say, the behavior of these so-called Christians, the hatred, the racism, the intolerance, hardly qualifies as godly. He says the demise of Christianity in this view is warranted. If Christians cannot learn to behave in a multicultural society, to play well with others, they deserve to diminish in numbers and influence. Now, that's a startling statement, but I think that I'm probably more in the second crowd than I am in the first crowd. I don't think we can blame somebody else for this problem. And that's the point. I think, and we read it together in the gospel text this morning, the words of Jesus himself, Jesus tells us, after he blesses us with the Beatitudes, he tells us, you are the salt of the earth. I'm sure if I was standing there, I'd be looking around like, who's he talking to? He can't be talking to me. You are the salt of the earth. And there's a warning that comes along with that particular metaphor. If you've lost your saltiness, then how can we restore saltiness to salt? Well, you have to throw it out. And it will be trampled under people's feet. Then he says, you are the light of the world. And John, of course, we know that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But here, Matthew has Jesus telling his disciples, you are the light of the world. And you don't light a lamp to cover it up so the light can't shine. You don't do that. You want the light to shine in all the house. And so there is a sense in which we are aggrieved. I can tell you there's a visceral sense that for Christian people in our culture right now because we have lost to a great degree the influence in our culture and our society and things aren't going our way. There is a sense in which we are being trampled and snuffed out. But I believe that I don't have anybody to blame but myself. And even if, as Bomber goes on to say, He says, both arguments have merit. He has a particular perspective and point of view that he's projecting in his writings, I think is a fair statement. He says, both arguments have merit, and both sides feel aggrieved. uh, I've been reading, kind of picking through this book titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, and he starts by giving an example. He says, if my grandfather, and he's probably not as old as I am, he said, but if my grandfather heard a man say, I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, he said, my grandfather would have laughed. (laughs) Now, see, it's not politically correct for me to even laugh like Truman's grandfather would have laughed because people will say, well, this is a serious problem. You feel like a woman trapped in a man's body? What can be done about this? This is a crisis of sexuality and gender. 
So he uses this example, and what he says from this, he uses this example to say, how did we get so far down the road into not taking that as a joke, but actually pondering it and taking a person seriously when they said that? Now, I've never had questions of gender identity. I've never struggled with that. I've never felt like a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body. I I don't have any way of identifying with that angst. And I'm not saying that it's not necessarily a crisis for some people. But for Christian people then, you know, who remember years ago it was popular for people to say it's not Adam and Steve, it's Adam and Eve. And uh, now in our popular culture, we kind of refrain from saying things like that because, you know, as in the words of Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? That's kind of the culture that we live in. So for conservatives then, they are tracking this progression, if we can allow that word to be used. Some would say erosion, this rottenness that is in our culture, and they're saying, how is it that the culture, and this is why the book is entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, how is it that in this expressive individualism where a person has asserted themselves to be the judge and the master of their own destiny, and and everyone has to not only tolerate that, but accept that and affirm them in that, how did we get down that road so far? It's an interesting question. I think it's still up for debate in our culture whether Western civilization will survive. There is a kind of cultural amnesia that is taking place in Western society right now. And whether we end up with anything that even resembles the ancient virtues or what we would call eternal truths is up in the air. But I don't think we have anybody to blame but ourselves for this. I am the salt of the earth. (laughs) I am the light of the world. That's what Jesus said. You are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I'm going to make a case in the next couple of weeks, but through Lent, I'm going to make a case that David Brooks in this book, How to Know a Person, has actually hanging in the background in his mind as he's writing this book and thinking about this book, I think that he has Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the back of his mind. Because the first thing that he comes out with is that you and I are not to be diminishers. We are to be what? Illuminators. If we don't claim to be the source of the light, at least we are to reflect the light of Jesus into the world. So Bomber says both Arguments have merit. Both sides feel aggrieved. What is incontestable, however, is that Christianity, although its grip on society is still formidable, Christianity no longer has the influence in American life that it once had. In fact, this is a point that is surfacing now with a lot of people. Something that I've talked about for years now is that the visible church in America is populated by unconverted people. They are evangelicals. They describe themselves as evangelicals, but they know very little about the Bible. And they only know 
what is first and foremost on their horizon is what has made them angry about the culture. And this is why we've read for the last two Sundays scriptures that follow this. You know, you heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that a person who is angry has in some senses, this is really interesting because Jesus gives us his view of the Old Testament scripture, what would have been the Bible for him. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this word will not pass away. Has a high view of scripture, but then he goes on to make a commentary in six different ways about how the scripture should be understood. So being, and we'll talk about this more, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, which I often do, but being a fundamentalist is not enough is what Jesus is saying. I am a fundamentalist, he's saying. I have a high view of scripture, but here's where you've messed up in your understanding of what the scripture actually means. And I think this is why I was going to ask this morning whether anybody could recite the uh, Beatitudes at the beginning of the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And then I thought better about that because I can't do it. I know the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, but then it is appalling. Here it is, the first book in the New Testament, and here in the fifth chapter, we have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his own words, his own ethical understanding of how a person should live and conduct their life as a Christian, as a follower of himself. And we are in, at least in the popular church in America, we are very, we have very little understanding. We have very little preaching about it. I know the reason why is because when you get to the end of the seventh chapter and Jesus says, love your enemies, ain't nobody got time for that. I have a hard time praying for my enemies. In fact, I don't pray for, well, I may bring down some curses upon It's hard to pray for someone and that person still remain your enemy. Maybe that's part of the solution, right? But this idea, this miles wide, inches deep understanding that we have of the moral, ethical teaching of Jesus, and part of the problem for this is that in dispensationalism, which is so popular in the history of America, in dispensationalism, the dispensationalists taught that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, didn't apply to us living in the church age, that that is the kingdom age in the future. And so there were generations of Christians, quote-unquote, exposed in church that were told, this doesn't apply to you in your life right now. And I think we've sown to the wind, and now we are reaping a virtual whirlwind. So. This is a statement by Alastair McIntyre, who's a Catholic scholar. He's written a groundbreaking book back in 1984 entitled After Virtue. And he said, there seems to be, this is 1984 when he's saying, there seems to be no rational way of securing moral agreement in our culture. There it is. There it is, right there. We have interminable arguments and discussions about this for the last, since he made this statement. 
and we cannot seem to find any consensus in the matter. You say, whose fault is it? Well, there is a growing wave of secularism in our culture, but I think if we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, Jesus is going to look at us and say, you know what? You're, <laughs> you're the salt of the earth. The earth? I can't even influence my neighbor for good. You're the salt of the earth. And by the way, here, let me throw this out at you. The rottenness that you are experiencing around you right now, it's because you've lost your saltiness. We kind of like the saltiness thing. The ancients, or Romans, for example, when they conquered Jerusalem, they plowed the ground with salt. And that was like, for us, arsenic or... Uh, now the big thing is don't drink bottled water. We're all drinking bottled water this morning because there's microplastic in the water. So in the ancient days, when you wanted to make a place uninhabitable, you plowed salt into the earth and no crops could grow. And if you couldn't grow crops, then people couldn't live there. In a lot of ways, our salt, and Jesus himself is saying this, if the salt is no good for, how many know? Oh, for the days of summer when you can slice a tomato. And every time Christy does that, right, the tomatoes are sliced, the cucumbers are sliced, and what else? The sweet peppers are sliced. And before I take one, I ask her, what do I ask her? I say, did you put salt on this? Because if she's put salt on it already and I put more salt on it, guess what? Can we taste that tomato slice together collectively right now? It's just perfect when the ripeness is right and there's just enough salt on it to accentuate the juicy fruit. Mm. Go in the name of the Lord, we're all going to lunch. But if you put too much salt on it, what happens? It's inedible. The popular church in America right now, they're just being caustic and toxic in their saltiness right now. And here's my contention. It's not a time for us to coddle one another and soft pedal what we need to do. I, let me talk about myself, I need to repent. So my constant prayer has been, thank you, Father, thank you. I wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes problems overwhelm me, and then um, that's my mantra. And don't criticize me for saying mantra. I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu. That's my mantra. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Because I'm reminding myself that no matter what the difficulties and pressures are right now, I know that it could always be worse, and it's not worse. So then do from me is a thank you to God. Thank you, Father. Thank you. I'm adding to thank you, Father. Thank you now. I repent. And I'm sure God is saying, I think God is saying, you need to tell me for what? Not because I don't know what you need to repent of, but you need to rehearse it before. We, and I haven't got to that yet. I haven't got to the point where I can actually drag all that stuff up and out. Just start with one thing. We're going to hear a lot of things that will cause us to moan and groan in this book, especially the chapter on illumination. But this is the problem that we're in. So some Christians that believe that it's time to get mad as hell and fight back. Some lady, <laughs> she was asked, 
It was just a news clip. I actually can't watch a lot of the news. You're probably in that same boat. She was at a Trump rally, and she was asked, do you think that President Trump, that his trouble in the courts right now enhances his votability, or it's going to make less people vote for him? She said, nothing will stop him. So it seems to elude our grasp right now in our nation of trying to understand how is it that we can arrive at some moral structure that will survive. All right, so now we're kind of segueing more into solution now. So David Brooks says on page 15 of this book, How to Know a Person, he says, the purpose of this book, and whenever an author tells you what the purpose of the book, he is giving you a gift. There's so many books that I've read what After I got through it, I don't know what the guy was writing about and what the point was. Here is the point of the book. He tells us right here. It's like lobbing a softball over the middle of home plate. Here is a gift for you to hit a home run. The purpose of this book is to help us become more skilled at the art of seeing others and making them feel seen, heard, and understand. So, This is one of the things that right now politically we're facing is that there's at least 40% of the country feels like they have not been listened to, that the cultural elites have just flown over their cities, their farmlands, their towns, that the cultural elites, you know, the plutocrats, the people in charge, if you've ever rubbed shoulders with these people, you know that they have attitude. Apparently, if you go to right Ivy League schools, this is one of the things that you get upon the day that you graduate is you get lots of attitude. Uh, Brooks talks about it. He's University of Chicago, Chicago University graduate, and he talks about this a little bit. The navel of our nation was Boston, and the Boston Brahmins and Their children and grandchildren were the people who were, before FDR showed up, let's put it that way, before FDR showed up, these were the people that were running the country. 40% of the country feel aggrieved. If you listen to uh, that song a while back, it was a country song, the guy was talking about the bosses in Richmond, I'm working all day, and that resonated with working class people who are, and I'm just talking statistically, who are, tend to be less educated, tend to make less money, more blue-collar, working-class people. Those people right now feel as though no one is listening to them. So this is an important statement because we can, in our uh, dealing with other people, our relationships with other people, How many know you can have a conversation that begins and already a few short words, you can put the other person down? Have you ever done it? Red says he's done it maybe unknowingly. (laughs) Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even if you're not aware of it, you still need forgiveness, right? But have you ever had a conversation with a person that you've never met before, been introduced to a person, you took an instant dislike to them? What is going on, and should that impulse then be resisted, or do we just say, you know, I had someone tell me I tried to work for them, and they told me in the uh, exit interview, 
they told me, he said, this person, I won't say whether he's a he or she's a she, this person said, well, we're just two different people. We're just two different people. And See, so as long as the culture allows for differences to separate us, but for Christians, you see, we're neither left nor right. We're, we're neither Democrats or we, we, we may be those things. We, we're neither male nor female. We're neither slave nor free. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. What is it? In other words, it's not either or. There is a third way. There is a third tribe. There is a third way of understanding and uh, spreading the good news of the gospel in the world. All right, so he talks about uh, diminishers versus illuminators. He said, being a, an illuminator, this is page 27, uh, seeing other people in all their fullness doesn't just happen. It's a craft, a set of skills, a way of life. Other cultures have words for uh, this way of being. The Koreans call it nunchi, and I looked that up a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not. The ability to be sensitive to other people's moods and thoughts. The Germans, of course, have a word for it, Herzenbildung, training one's heart to see the full humanity in another. So then he goes on to describe what an illuminator like. Are you ready for some like, oh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at any of these. Tenderness. This is pages 32 through 36, tenderness. So the last couple of days, I don't know, I, I wasn't having a, a bad day, but it was just one of those days where you're kind of out of sort. My dad told me when I started pastoring, he said, you know, son, if you get into trouble, just come to me. He said, basically all the troubles in pastoring, there's about 12 cubby holes or, or little boxes, and you just you take that problem, you put it in that box. And so the last couple of days, it wasn't that I was having a bad day. It was just like nothing seemed to fit, you know, like sorting your mail. It didn't seem like I could find a category. And so you spend a lot of time trying to sort your mail or your life out. And all you got is a bunch of mail on the floor. And most of it is ads, you know, stuff you're going to throw away anyways. And so Christy kind of picks up on this. And so she comes home through the door, and she says, here, let me give you a hug. Now, I can count on one hand the times that she has said that to me in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that she's not tender, but I'm just saying it was unusual. So I let her give me a hug. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll let you give me a hug. And so she's hugging me. And I'm saying, and she's, you know how some people are like, they just go in for a quick hug and then they back away. Like, let's see how they'll, t what will happen, whether they'll blow up or not. And so she goes in for a hug and she's hugging me. How can you get uncomfortable with your own wife because she's hugging you for too long? I don't know how, how that happens, but it happened. And so she's hugging me and she's, speaking words of encouragement to me. She's saying, you're such a wonderful person and I love you so much. And I don't, I'm kind of making this up right now. 
you know what I said to her? I said, Christy, this isn't working. These are not natural tendencies. Now, I will say this. I talked to uh, Sister Hardwick once, you know, Southern families are all very lovey-dovey there. You know, have you ever been in a family where they're all huggers? It's not like, hi, how you doing? It's like, ah, oh, here, come. It's Adrian. Here, let me give you a hug, right? And you can't get away from them. They give you a beer hug. Uh, I talked to Sister Hardwick. I said, well, you know, she, she asked me about my parents, and I said, well, I haven't talked to them in a while. You, ha- you haven't talked to your your mama and daddy in a while? I said, well, you know, our family's a little bit different from yours. You know, we're, we're just not that huggable kind of people. She, well, I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't give my boys a hug. And I was like, yeah, uh, I hear you. Some families are like that, but typically the tenderness that he's talking about, a deep emotional concern about another being. Receptivity. Opening yourself up to the experience of another. We would sometimes hear that in our culture as, uh, you know, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in their shoes, right? But there's a lot of people in personal relationships right now, we're just writing people off on the basis of what our first impression might be. Active curiosity. He quotes a person who said, I wanted to know what it was like to be everybody. Most of us are, Kirsty bought a new salad the other night. I don't know what it was. It was some kind of Mexican salsa salad. Have you heard about these? And it was pretty bad. I'm open for new experiences, but it was pretty bad. And you know what? I heard myself saying to her, Christy, we're 70 years old. Let's just buy the salad that we know that we like and not buy, not experiment with new salads now. But you know what that does? You might miss out on some. You might eat some salad that's not your favorite, but you might miss out on something. When Rick and I were at Dan and Trish Scott's, Trish cooked one night and she cooked some kind of soup and she fixed ceviche. And I thought I was looking at Rick. Rick was over there. And I think Tris said, Rick, you want some soup? And I thought, oh boy. But Rick was like, yeah, I'll try that. We were at a barbecue place the other day. I asked him, I said, well, what? They had a big sign up for dessert. And I said, what do you have for dessert? Well, we have bread pudding. And we also have... Uh, French beignets. And you know what Rick said? Oh, I like beignets. And I'm like, have you got a Julia Child cookbook in your closet somewhere? Rick, you like French beignets? Oh yeah, I like apple beignets. You know, when we went to Houdat with the kids, the kids would always order. And so I was like, well, I'm up for that too. And so we had French beignets. But see, active curiosity. In other words, it may be a little discomforting. We have to do this with people too. We think in our minds, well, that that person is just not the kind of person that I am. Or I'm not interested in knowing more about that person. 
Maybe they're a different skin color. Maybe they're a different ethnicity. Maybe they have a different job. Maybe there's nothing that is appealing to us at all. And what Brooks is saying is that we can't close our... And that's one of the things in our culture right now where we're very striated and divided. We are closing off any possibility for even hard conversations. And that's one of the chapters that Brooks has in his book, Hard Conversation. Affection, generosity, a holistic attitude. You know, we tend to, as uh, Brooks says, we only see a piece of a person. And we don't get to know them long enough to understand them holistically. So he says, and thank God he says this on 37, because I'm feeling like I can't really check off any of those things on the list right now. I can't say, oh yeah, this is me, I'm tender. I'm receptive, I'm actively curious, I'm affectionate, I'm generous, and I really like getting to know the whole person. He says, being an illuminator is an ideal and one that most of us will fall short of a lot of the time. But if we try our best to illuminate people with a glowing gaze, that's it, get your glowing gaze on. What's it look like? If we try our best to illuminate people with a glowing gaze that is tender, generous, and receptive, we'll at least be on the right track. And then I'll close with this. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll talk about the next chapter is accompaniment. He says, the way we attend to others. Here it is. And this is really what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. The way we attend to others determines the kind of person we become. The way we attend to others determines the kind of person we become. If we see people generously, we will become generous, or if we view them coldly, we will become cold. I remember, and I probably, I've told this to you before, but when somebody first told me that I was now a licensed minister of the gospel, And I've told you this before, I'd make a great pastor if I didn't have to deal with people. But I was in the elevator with my mother at a general conference. And it was like, I should have had more friends there than I did. And the friends that I did have there should have been more friendly to me. I'd been out, graduated from Bible school a while, and all these people, we'd all gone to Bible school together. And there should have been more uh, relationship expressed there, and it wasn't. So for, for a moment in the elevator with my mother, everybody, it was just my mother and me in the elevator. I said to her, Ma, that's what I called my mother. It's a term of affection. Ma, I said, I'm just having trouble making friends. And she immediately in Elizabeth Elliot style and fashion quoted a scripture back to me from Proverbs that says, if a man has friends, he has to show himself what? Friendly. You have to be friendly. I tend to be, I tend to, and this is one of the things I identify with Brooks, if you've read the preface and the first chapter, he tends to be one of these kind of wallflower people, not pushing himself forward. He's not an extrovert. And so when my mother said that, she was zeroed in. Sometimes, you know, mothers can give you good words. They cut through the chase and say, here's your problem. (laughs) If you want to have friends, you have to be friendly. And I think that, 
you say, well, I want to see revival come to America. Well, you know what? The journey of a thousand miles starts with what? A small step. Where does revival begin? Uh, love God with your all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And the second is like to the first. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's where revival begins. But because our neighbors aren't seeing us as being salt of the earth and light of the world, but we're caustic and toxic, short-tempered, actually full of hatred and enmity at times, and say the worst manner of things to other people, all in the name of Christ, no wonder they've stopped coming to church. The way we attend to others determines the kind of person we become. If we see people generously, we will become generous, or if we view them coldly, we will become cold. Palmer's observation, he quotes this guy, is essential because he is pointing to a modern answer to an ancient question. See, this is an ancient question. This is what the pursuit of virtue for thousands of years, they have tried to answer that. What is the summum bonum? What is life all about? What is the big goal in life? How do I become a better person? And that is, After Jesus blesses us in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, after he URs us, tells us what we are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, now comes the commands. Only after we have been blessed by Jesus and told who we are, then comes the responsibility of living our life as salt in the earth and light in the world. Thank you, Father, that you have great patience with us. Patience is a virtue, and you are the master at it, Father. You always travel with us, wherever we are, whatever move, whether the day is going well or not, whether we can sort the mail out in the cubbyholes of life, whether we have made a rash judgment about someone else, whether we've said words that are wrong, Father, You are always with us. You said you'd be with us even to the end of the age. And we ask you, Father, be patient enough and kind enough to us to lead us back to repentance. And we ask this for the sake of your Son, and it is in his name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.